Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, June 27th, we're studying Acts chapter 23, verses 12 to 35. A plot against Paul's life is uncovered and brought to the attention of the Tribune in Jerusalem. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Delighted to be with you. Pastor Roth, as we get started, let's talk context. What should we know about the book of Acts, where we are in it, as we prepare, prepare to look at these verses today? Well, we're in the home stretch, really. Um, I mean, we've had the transition from the, uh, the Pentecost events, which we just celebrated a couple weeks ago, to... Um, uh, the Peter, Peter, and the um, other immediate disciples of Jesus who um, have gone out and done great work around Jerusalem uh, and uh, Judea, and the transition then to Paul, and Paul has now completed his third missionary journey and is in prison, and well, kind of house arrest essentially. I mean, he's not in stocks or anything like that at this point, um, and he's now about to make his trip to Rome, albeit by a very circuitous and uh, lengthy route. Um, but a crucial verse, uh, to the crucial verse leading into our section today is the last verse from, um, <clears throat> which you covered last time, verse 11, in which the Lord Jesus appears to Paul and says that it's now time for you to go to Rome. In fact, he says it is necessary for you to go to Rome. And you and I have talked before about this Greek word dei, it is necessary. It's a frequent term when it's talking about something that's divinely necessary. So when Jesus says it's necessary for the Son of Man to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, then that means it's divinely necessary. This is the plan all along. And in order for God's holy scriptures of the Old Testament to be fulfilled, it is necessary that these events occur. Jesus now gives a revelation to Paul that it, that he's going to continue in that plan of God. And uh, I would say that one of the interesting things about this section is that we see Paul is rather passive. He's a central figure, but he's not an actor for the most part. It's events occurring around him, which are being coordinated by our Lord, working through sinful men to bring about his purposes for Paul. Um, so this is a crucial transition point that now it's time for the final stretch for Paul to go to Rome. But first, he's going to make a... Uh, detour to Caesarea due to the very, very interesting historical events that Luke records in this narrative. Let's go ahead and begin to read this narrative then. As you said, the promise of the Lord was just spoken to Paul in verse 11. Jesus came, stood by Paul and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And then we pick up today with verse 12 of Acts chapter 23. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. 
and now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 22 of the text. But Pastor Roth, it's daytime at the beginning of the text, and the Jews make a plot. They bind themselves by oath about killing Paul. What's what's going on? What's what's this oath that they're taking? Um, <clears throat> well, there's plenty of precedent in the Old Testament and also in, in the New and then continuing into the New Testament of taking certain types of oaths or making vows. Um, in this particular case, uh, the, the terminology is pretty interesting because you've got uh, the term on uh, ana themati ana thematisamen. They are calling down an anathema upon themselves. Essentially, it's a and that's the same thing that Paul talks about in Galatians one nine when he says, "Anyone who preaches a gospel other than the one that he received from me, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed." So the sense here is that they're taking a very, very serious vow in which they're specifically invoking the Lord to punish them and even destroy them if, in fact, they don't fulfill this. So this shows how fanatical and intent they are upon destroying Paul. So the anathema language adds the the Lord's name to it, that they would rather be cursed. And then the matter of not eating or drinking, essentially they're saying, it's us or Paul. Either mm-hmm. we're going to be dead or he's going to be dead. It's going to be one or the other. That's how serious this is. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, given that we get thirsty and hungry pretty quickly, they probably want to make it get over with as quickly as possible. Okay. So they're eager to do this for, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about this oath because, and not to spoil it too much, but we, we know that Paul is not going to die at their hands. We, we can already see that based on what we've read and what we've already talked about. Did they fulfill their their half of the oath? I mean, I, I think this is a good example of a, a false oath, probably. Well, it is. Now, Jewish law at this time and afterwards um, in the Talmud, there are ways of getting out of vows. And so, of course, <laughs> of course, there are. Right. So uh, this was a rash decision. And they probably knew that it wasn't something that they'd have to, you know, fulfill um, because think about it, if you're unscrupulous enough to conspire to kill a man for simply having a, a different uh, religious opinion than you do, then you probably aren't necessarily a person of integrity, right? <laughs> if you're willing to break the fifth commandment, uh, then there's a good chance you're willing to break the second commandment as well. I suppose so. But I, th- I do think it, it's, it does show the the foolishness of making an oath like this. Mm. Oh, Be- yes. Because, yes. and that, I guess that's kind of where I wanted to go with that is that, sure. you know, you, you see how quickly, I mean, they, they sound very serious and they, such that they're willing to not eat and drink until they kill Paul. And they're even willing to have God curse them if they don't kill Paul. But when push comes to shove, they're, they're not actually willing. And you just see the, the utter foolishness of trying to use God's name to back yourself up in a case like this. And it, it ends up, as you said, breaking the second commandment. Yeah, I think you and I actually did the the passage from Judges where the guy comes home and, and he's Jephthah. Like, makes this yeah. Jephthah, right? He makes yeah. this oath that the first person he sees he's going to sacrifice, and it turns out to be his daughter. And we, you know, this is that one of those rash oaths. So oaths are only permitted in very serious matters that the Lord has given us permission to do. Um, so, for example, today we would speak of marriage vows as an oath, uh, oath in a court of law, because what you're doing there is you're trying to secure protection or necess- or in conviction, justice of, of another person, confirmation vows or an oath that we make before God. So it is certainly good, right, and salutary that we should um, make oaths in those important situations, but we should be very careful never to make an oath that we have no intention of fulfilling or that is in an unserious or, or especially in an evil matter. Mm, right. And then the evil matter is what's going on here. They're ready yeah. to die rather than have Paul live. They say that's what's going to happen. Of course, as we, we've said, that's not what's going to happen. It's a pretty big conspiracy, too. There's 40 of them, St. Luke tells us, and then they, they go higher up the chain. How do, they, how do they intend to get the leaders of the people involved? Well, I think they know that at least some of the leaders, some of the members of the council were really eager to get rid of Paul. 
And so I can't imagine that they went to the entire council, but I suspect they went to some of the people that they would have suspected would be willing to, or and maybe even corrupt enough to, to go along with this plan to, uh, to, to summon, um, the, uh, tribune and, and, uh, have him bring Paul down for further inquiry. Mm. So, and that, that plays into what we've saw, what we've seen previously. The last text was this tribune. He was looking into the matter more. He'd called the council himself and Paul threw out the matter of the resurrection of the dead that really started the squabble and led to not a lot being found out by the tribune at that point. So now that's what these conspirators are planning to use to their advantage. Pretend like you want to tell the tribune more. That's the opportunity for the tribune to set Paul, uh, bring Paul out of the prison and then they have a chance to kill him. Exactly. You know, it's worth mentioning here that the, the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theories gets bang, bandied about a lot today as a kind of a conversation silencer. But just because sometimes people go to the extremes doesn't mean that conspiracies don't occur. Um, you know, people hatch pl- plots all the time and it only takes, you know, wherever two or three are gathered in a, con- you know, in a, a plot, <laughs> there you have a conspiracy. This happened to be a rather large conspiracy. And I suspect that's one of the reasons why it was hard for them to keep it quiet. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, it's worth noting, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, you know, birds of a feather flock together and where people are gathering together with evil designs, they're going to cause lots of trouble. And Mm -hmm. so why should we, you know, why on God's green earth would we expect that this sort of thing wouldn't be happening around us today? Um, again, we don't want to go off into wild conspiracy theories, but let's also be realistic Mm -hmm. that Sinful men conspire together uh, to to uh, hinder the Lord's designs and and often to persecute God's people. Right, and it, I mean this is nothing new to Saint Paul. When you go back through his missionary journeys, it, it maybe isn't described in as such in this much detail in other places. But every time people get together to try to kill Paul or run him out of town or do something harmful to him in one way or another, there is a conspiracy happening. And so this is nothing new for Paul either. That's right. And and in every case, the Lord works against the conspirators to bring about Paul's salvation and ultimately fulfill his plans for him. So um, it reminds me of Psalm 2, right? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. That's a conspiracy, right? Against the Lord and against his anointed. And what does the Lord do? He laughs. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. The, the, the apostles, and this was before Paul's conversion, but back in Acts chapter four, the apostles used that verse from Psalm two within their prayer. And over and over again in the book of Acts, you see how the Lord does laugh from heaven at the plans of men, of these kings, these rulers against his people. And in one way or another, he has his way. Going back to what you brought up at the beginning, this you must, the it is necessary from verse mm-hmm. 11. We're going to see how the Lord works through what appears to be a pretty dangerous plot, some serious, pretty serious people he's still going to work through to get Paul ultimately to Rome. Again, he's not going to get there today, but that's where the Lord has Paul headed. Right. And I think it's really interesting here to see that while the Tribune is not blameless, as we'll see in a little bit, he's 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 got his own flaws, maybe. Um, the Lord is going to make use of a good Roman ruler to protect Paul. And that's an interesting juxtaposition with the, the evil Jewish leaders at Jerusalem um, who are conspiring against Paul. Mm. Uh, this, this scene reminds me a little bit of what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 18, which is where Paul is in Corinth at that time. And there's a, there's a moment there where the Lord comes to Paul and speaks to him in a vision and then about his protection. And then immediately after it, there's this attempt to take to do something harmful to Paul. And it's a Roman ruler. It's Gallio proconsul of Achaia, who's there at the moment, who really steps in and prevents any harm from happening to Paul, much like we're going to see with the Tribune here. But again, both of those follow that promise of the Lord. And you see how that, once again, in the book of Acts, the word of the Lord is directing the events, even through these various human machinations. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've got the conspiracy in place. 40 men, they've spoken to some of the Sanhedrin, asked for the whole Sanhedrin's help. 
But in verse 16, the conspiracy is found out, as you said, perhaps because it is such a large group. Who finds out about it? What's the what happens next? Yeah, this is the son of Paul's sister. So we would say he's uh, his nephew. We don't know anything about Paul's sister. We don't know anything about this man, except that he is a young man. And the commentators will all say that he probably was between the ages of 20 and 40, because that Greek term is used for that age range. Um, given the fact that the Tribune takes him by the hand a little bit later, it is hard for me not to see him as being maybe a little bit younger. Um, it's not implausible that he would have taken a 20 or 40 year old by the hand, but it, it does have this kind of feeling that maybe he was a, a little bit younger at least. Hmm. So we don't know anything about Paul's sister, his nephew, whether they're Christian or not, who's older, who's younger. We got nothing. Zip, Man. zilch, nada. Oh, that's too bad. But it would be it would be a fun historical novel to write. <laughs> okay. You know, to re- right? All right. But we're not we're not here to talk about no, we're not. novelty or, that's or fiction. Right. We're here to talk about the Lord's truth. That's right. All right. So it is Paul's nephew who hears of the ambush. And and this is where you I think you begin to see that theme that Paul is pretty passive. Paul gets involved in a very minor degree here, but by and large, things are happening around him and to him. He's pretty passive. So well, maybe just explain this briefly. Paul's in prison at this point, but Paul's able to have some communication with his nephew. How does how does that work? That may strike people as strange. Right. So, and you know, unless somebody's in stocks for having committed some sort of heinous crime, um, there is evidence from secular writers of this same period that it was possible to visit prisoners, um, bring them food and uh, clothing. Uh, maybe medicine. So this is not at all an implausible or un- unusual scenario. I think this this would have he was he was like I said earlier more or less under house arrest. We'll see at the end of Acts, right? He's under house arrest for what eighteen months in Rome when the narrative abruptly ends, and people are coming and going. He's able to actually preach to people. Uh, so I, I uh, since he since the Tribune himself will say this man has committed no crime worthy of imprisonment or death then I could certainly see how there would have been a flexibility there. So there's nothing implausible about this or unusual, really. Sure. And, and we'll see in the coming chapter as well, when, when Paul is kept in custody by Felix, that Felix even says, let him have visitors, give him some liberty. Right. So this is a, yep. a pretty, he's, he is in prison, but it is a, a flexibility that's there and, and a little more freedom is maybe not as, as too strong, but there's, there is some ability of Paul to have communication, to have visitors. And, and this is a good example with the nephew coming. So talk a little bit about how Paul, I mean, again, we do hear him say this one thing in verse 17, but, but how Paul is passive in this narrative, why that's important. Well, I think it goes back to our introduction where the Lord says, you know, it's necessary for you to go to Rome. And that that term of necessity is something that shows that God is acting. And since we see Jesus himself voluntarily, even though he's the son of God, the all-powerful creator of the universe, he humbles himself to be born of the virgin and then to um, take the form of a slave and and look at his his passion. Um, He's he's treated like a common slave, uh, abused. He is the innocent one, though, so that's an important theme that we're going to see with Paul is in the coming chapters, in in the next several sections, we're going to see Paul repeatedly declared innocent. Um, And so in some sense, I think this this has to be declared innocent is is essentially a passive thing. So this is the point not for Paul to be active and busy in mission work, but it's for him to be passive in witnessing to what he has heard and seen and in indeed suffering for the sake of Christ. So I see the, a pattern here of Paul, um, you know, basically following the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was very active in the first, you know, large, substantial part of his ministry. But at the end, uh, he becomes passive and, and voluntarily submits to this imprisonment and then punishment. Mm. Uh, we talked a little bit about this with the previous text, how Paul's life does mirror the Lord's. And yet it's not always, a, it's not a one-for-one correspondence all the time. You know, you brought out that it is necessary. When Jesus uses that word of himself, he includes things like it is necessary for him to suffer and die and rise. 
Paul's not going that direction at this point yet. He's not going to his death. He's willing to, but he's not. And so we continue to see how Paul's life does mirror the life of his Lord. Indeed, as every Christian's does in, in some way, but it's not always everything that Jesus does is something that you and I will do as well. Exactly. Yeah. And you think back to Paul's uh, conversion um, Mm -hmm. when the Lord tells Ananias, I'm going to show this guy how much he's going to have to suffer for the sake of my name. That doesn't mean that he's going to suffer exactly the same tortures and, and death necessarily as Jesus himself. But the point of Christian suffering is that we're to become more Christ-like. He is shaping us to be more like him in humility, in dependency, and in willingness to bear shame and suffering for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's passivity here in this text is a part of that shaping of the Lord. One thing that is different, though, or maybe it stands out a little bit differently than, say, what happens to Peter in Acts chapter 12, Peter is passive in his release from prison in Acts chapter 12. The angel comes and does that. As we see Paul in this text be passive, though, there's not anything that, at least on the surface, appears so uh, such direct divine intervention. There's no angel that protects Paul from the, at least no, no uh, spirit, that, that sort of angel that protects Paul here in this case. It happens through human means, and even human means that aren't necessarily Christians acting on the on behalf of Paul. What what does that ha- have to teach us? I think that it reminds us that the Lord usually works through normal means to bring about his purposes in our lives. So if I, you know, break my arm, um, I might pray for the Lord to magically set it, but he's probably going to suggest, uh, or at least <laughs> His, uh, at least experience suggests that I'd be better off going to the doctor to set the arm. So, the, the you know, the Lord Jesus did work through a, a miracle of sorts when he did appear to Paul at the beginning of this section, right? So there was a revelation. But as far as the Lord inserting his hand into the events, no, he's behind the scenes. He's, he's working these things together. He sets a limit to the amount of evil that men can do, and he, he brings about good for his people. So in that sense, does this text have a measure of comfort for us? When, when, for example, you know, you break your arm or a little bit more in line with what Paul's going through, we suffer for the sake of the gospel and we, we don't see that direct divine intervention, you know, immediate divine intervention that is without means, or, or we, we wonder what is the Lord doing? Some of those questions that come up, it seems that there would be some comfort from a text like this to see how even when and, you know, if, if we're just reading this without that promise from Jesus at the beginning, it seems like things are just sort of taking a natural course. When we put that promise there, we know that this isn't just a, quote, natural course, but actually the Lord is behind this directing events for his purposes. Yeah, I mean, you know, secularists will speak of, of luck or good fortune, uh, happenstance. And as Christians, we really should just disavow the use of those terms and should speak more in sen- the sense of God's providence his hidden will, um, things like that, because we oftentimes, actually probably more often than not, have no idea what our Lord is up to with our lives. And especially in times of suffering, we are utterly clueless. But, you know, Paul is the same one who said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And, you know, when I'm at my weakest, that's when the power of Christ is, is strongest in me. And so our sufferings and afflictions humble that sinful pride that is childish, ultimately, that pride and, and that self-centeredness that says, I want it and I want it now. And what does the psalmist say? Wait for the Lord. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul in Second Corinthians kind of talks about this, how he, he, he was really made to, he was forced to become more patient through the, the process of, of all of his sufferings and trials, which he enumerates there. And this is one of those instances where, can you just imagine sitting day after day after day, waiting for a trial, um, you know, it, 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 however, I, I imagine that what Paul was doing in the midst of all this was praying, singing hymns, mm-hmm. writing scriptures, and then also preaching the gospel to the people around him. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the things that Luke narrates for us in other places, when Paul and Silas are in prison for Phil- in Philippi, for example, likely Paul is doing something similar here, even though Luke doesn't record it here. Now, he, he does record for us, though, this back and forth. And again, it's, it's very detailed. You know, it's one of those places where 
this is sort of you know of course he could have said what he whatever you know he could have gone through this very quickly that the young boy went to the tribune told the tribune and then they i mean this could be very short but luke chooses to record the back and forth between the young man the one who takes the young man to the tribune what the tribune says to the nephew uh, what are what are the details that we need to to pay attention to in this back and forth well, I think that on a broader level, what this reminds us of is that the Lord works through human authors who have literary abilities and are operating within a certain literary milieu. And, um, you know, so, for example, Luke's gospel begins with this, you know, prologue that says, I've investigated all these things very carefully, which sounds a whole lot like Greek and Roman historiographers. Um, and, and so our Lord is working through a literary genre history. Right. And through uh, certain forms that uh, were, were current at the time. So uh, I just think that this section, while the details themselves, I, you know, I don't see a whole lot of necessary import in them. Nonetheless, it provides this very clear, uh, detailed, um, investigative approach that Luke took. And it, it just has this. Well, I mean, it is real, but it has a realism to it in the way that he presents it. Mm, yeah, and and we've seen that from Luke throughout both the Gospel and the Book of Acts, how he has been very detailed, very careful to record things accurately. And it is a reminder that what we are reading is not a made-up story, but these are real things that happen to real people. And very importantly for our purposes, the Lord himself is behind it, directing events, fulfilling his promise that he made to Paul, that just as Paul has testified about Jesus in Jerusalem, he will also testify about Jesus in Rome. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Acts 23 with Pastor Carl Roth. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, June 27th. We're studying Acts chapter 23, verses 12 to 35 with Pastor Carl Roth. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we looked up through verse 22. Paul's nephew has gone to the Tribune and revealed the conspiracy against Paul to the Tribune. The Tribune has sent the nephew away and said, don't tell anyone what you've said. We pick up the narrative again now in verse 23. Then he, that's the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. That's the rest of our text for today. That takes us through Acts 23, verse 35. So the Tribune takes action pretty quickly. He calls two centurions, and they get a lot of soldiers to escort this one man. 
what what's going on here? It's quite the scene. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, um, you know, there were 40 conspirators and for all they knew there could have been, been more. So the, the possibility of ambush was, was a very real one. And you always want to have more, you know, several more men to the other people's number. Plus um, roads and around Jerusalem between there and Caesarea at this period of time was, were not necessarily safe. So there were mar- mar- uh, marauders and murders. And so they, Paul being a Roman citizen, it seems to me that Claudius really wanted to make sure that he was um, well protected. Now it does strike us as a rather extreme force to have around him. Um, so I'll offer my, my hypothesis as to why such a large force would have been given. First of all, we, we just accept on face value that this is what happened, right? right? But it wasn't a long trip, and we know that the bulk of the group did not go more than two-thirds of the way, and they went very, very quickly. Um, so I could just imagine that maybe the Tribune is, is sending the men off for, a, for an exercise, right? A little bit of military training. If they ever had to do this again, this would be a good experience for them. So that's my hypothesis. I have no possible way of knowing whether it's true. I could just imagine that that would be a justification on the part of the Tribune to undertake an expedition like this. Sure, that makes good sense. And again, it, we can't know that from what Luke gives us, but it does. It makes good sense, even in, in modern terms, to here's something that does need to be done. Let's make use of this to accomplish more than one thing for the sake of the soldiers. That, that makes good sense. I, I think from a from a theological perspective, too, just to, to see you've got this one man, Paul, who seems pretty insignificant in the eyes of the world, and, and maybe even... To, to Claudius Lysias, the tribune, rather significant, insignificant. And yet, because the Lord has made the promise to Paul, the Lord's going to make sure Paul gets to where he needs to go. And so he surrounds him with this, this army. I mean, it's just, a, it, it strikes me. Is it, is it Elisha? Who's the one that has the, the, he, he tells, or he, he asks the Lord to open the servant's eyes so that he sees that those that are with us are more than those with them. Right. And the, the great yeah. armies that surround the people of God here, quite literally, there's this army around Paul. Mm-hmm. I, I, just a beautiful picture, I think. Yeah, it makes me think of Psalm 91, that he'll command his angels concerning you. Um, you know, they, they're surrounding us at all times. So, yeah, this was a visible way of the Lord showing Paul that I got your back. Yeah. Well, and, and to see the anyone who was who was looking on, perhaps scratching their head, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> is that the emperor? <laughs> right. You know, it's, I mean, just this this lowly, lowly man, one of the Lord's apostles receives this great protection from from Claudius Lysias. What a what a beautiful thing. Now, before we take a look at the letter that Claudius writes to Felix, uh, talk a little bit about the geography. You mentioned that most of the troop only ends up going a third or two thirds of the way. They're going to Caesarea. They stop along the way just help us get our bearings in terms of geography here right so caesarea is about um 60 to 52 or 60 um well some say 55 miles um it's on the coast and so it's going to be to the north and to the west uh, from jerusalem and antipatris is about 37 miles from jerusalem and it seems in the dead of night that's the trip that they made with the 270 men and afterward it's the horsemen that continue um, some people have said that it seems like it probably couldn't have happened that quickly, but there's pretty good evidence that they could move uh, very, very quickly, especially um, for the second leg. If they used the horse relay, um, they could move very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not a terribly long trip today by car. Um, you could follow pretty much the same route. The roads seem to follow the, the same roads that they would have had back then. And it would take about an hour and 20 minutes mm-hmm. by car, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not a terribly long journey. Okay, so and so the the trip that they make, they make the first leg by night and then finish it the rest of the journey the next day with horsemen. Yeah. Okay, okay, and, and the other guys come back, the other soldiers come back because presumably you've put enough space between the Jews in Jerusalem and that there's no way that the the conspirators could have traveled that as quickly as the Roman army could have. Okay. So he's safe at this point, and then they they take him the rest of the way into the uh, Praetorium of of Herod. So and the. The person to whom Claudius writes is Felix the governor. This is the first time we've met him. He's going to become a, a prominent figure, particularly in the next chapter as well. Who is this Felix the governor? So Felix was um, the provincial governor, um, and so he had a, a pretty wide jurisdiction there. 
Um, he, I think, reigned from or was was the governor there from 52 to 60. We hear about him in other sources, such as uh, Josephus and Tacitus. So, um, you know, he's well established as a historical figure. He seems to have been possibly a freedman who made his way up and was, I think, probably under Claudius, you know, granted citizenship. Um, and so he, he's responsible for, for governing the affairs of this province. And, and in this particular case, uh, it seems that the tribune at Jerusalem needed to kick things up the, the ladder a little bit, not only get him to Paul to a safe place, but it seems like maybe this was an issue that needed to be handled at a higher administrative level. Mm. And this is again, not unprecedented. We see with Pliny the younger and the emperor Trajan, when Pliny is in the black sea region, he's routinely writing letters asking for advice um, from Trajan on how to handle certain situations. And, and so there's always a chain of command, and, and that seems to be what's happening here. All right. We talked about in Acts chapter 21 when this when the riot started that led to Paul being arrested in the in the beginning, that the situation there in Jerusalem was pretty tenuous between Jews and Gentiles, and there were a lot of tensions that would have been ready to explode, something that a man like this tribune, Claudius Lysias, would not have wanted to happen on his watch. He's He stepped in pretty quickly several times in the narrative to prevent things. And it, it seems that at this point, he realizes this is going to be more than he can handle or wants to handle at his level. And so it makes good sense for him to kick it up the ladder. Exactly. And, and I mean, there, there was, you know, the fact that we've got these 40 conspirators, uh, they're there was a Jewish. There were certain Jewish fanatics that were really interested in fomenting rebellion against the Roman state. So this was not at all a stable time, and this is going to. It's going to culminate, of course, with the Jewish wars of sixty-six to seventy, and finally the destruction of Jerusalem. And Felix um, seems to have not necessarily been very effective at preventing further conflict between the Jews and Romans, and maybe even kind of added fuel to the fire. Um, so. This this we're we're in a, ver- a period of great instability. Mm. So Claudius Lysias pens a letter. He writes an epistle to to Felix. Uh, talk a little bit about. I mean, you see, you know, we ha- we know the epistles of the New Testament that Paul writes a good number of them. They follow a general structure. It seems that there's a, a structure to this letter too. Talk a little bit about the structure, and then more importantly, what's in the letter. Sure. So um, this is the only instance of a secular letter that we have mentioned in the New Testament. So it's actually a very interesting, you know, from a historical perspective. Now, there's nothing novel about letter writing and epistles between officials in the Roman Empire. We have tons and tons and tons of them. And um, what Claudius Lysias does is follows a very standard formal structure. So if, if you wanted a quick secular reference, you could go look to Again, plenty of the plenty of the younger's letters, and you'd see a very similar structure with the greeting, and then the body, and then a you know a farewell. So this is, and the greeting is going to always have if you're writing to someone above you a sort of a flattering tone to it, a flattering title, um, and this was a pretty standard way of writing letters down through the Middle Ages, even into the Reformation. So you'll see similar letters written to the you know the Holy Roman Emperor or to um, one of the electors. They'll They'll have these kind of flattering letters, and they'll, they'll follow a, a very similar pattern. Hmm. So in his letter, then, Claudius Lysias recounts the, the history, what's happened, such that he is now sending Paul to see Felix. Uh, what do we see in the way that Claudius rehearses the events as he relates them to Felix? Yeah. So what Claudius leaves out is just as important as what he puts in for our <laughs> purposes, right? Because we've read, we're reading the narrative, and we know that when he first encounters Paul. He has no idea that he's a Roman citizen. He's thinking about torturing him. And all of that stuff gets quashed uh, in this letter, which, of course, you know, why would you put it in there? Felix only needs to know the main details here. But Claudius definitely formulates this letter in such a way that he makes himself look heroic, dutiful, and um, focused on the fact that Paul's a Roman citizen. Uh, he he emphasizes that he he's been doing careful investigation um, and and has protected Paul and that this issue is the issue at hand is not really a matter of Roman law or of crime, but of some sort of internal Jewish dispute according to their law. Um, now, uh, 
So, um, and he also then declares Paul's innocence. I've, mm-hmm. I've investigated him and, and I haven't, it's almost kind of like Pilate, right? I, I see nothing worthy of death for this particular man. And again, that this might be a, a good parallel between Jesus and Paul. Mm. So, I mean, is, is Claudius's, what, what do we, what do we make of him then at this? Because this is really where he leaves the narrative by this point. He, he doesn't show up. What do we, is he, is he one of the good guys? Is he one of the bad guys somewhere in between? What do we make of his, his figure? Well, that's a pretty simplistic way of looking at the world. Um, the good guy, bad guy thing is great in Westerns. Um, you know, and and in TV shows, dramas, but it doesn't really work that way. So all of us are a mixed bag. Simul used to set Picotter for Christians. Um, For the non-Christian who doesn't have the new man, it's even a more difficult issue. So I think that we see certain admirable qualities in um, Claudius's, um, uh, his, his actions. I mean, he's decisive, he's perceptive, but then he also kind of has this, tendency that all of us have to shade the truth for self-protection, right? He's going to portray his actions in as positive a light as possible and downplay the negative. And for pragmatic political reasons, this makes sense. He's not, and he doesn't even necessarily need to go into all those details, but he definitely makes himself look better than he really is. Um, But I admire this man. I think that, you know, he's, he's a great example of somebody that the Lord used to, to bring about the protection of Paul I pray that, well, pray, not, I hope that he, uh, you know, was influenced by Paul to listen to the gospel and perhaps even become a believer. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know. This is the first place in, in verse 26 is where you finally find out his name. Up to this point, he's just been known by his title. So I had wondered the same thing about whether or not he, he believed or not. We don't know from the narrative, but certainly he did have the opportunity to hear Paul preach the gospel. So Claudius leaves the narrative after his letter. He does disclose to Felix pretty clearly that he is convinced Paul's innocent. This is really about questions of their law. That's something we're going to hear as Paul continues on trial in the coming chapters. And now the situation goes to Felix. So we get we get the journey in verses 31 and following. And then he gets to Felix. How does how does Felix begin his examination? We don't see much here. How does Felix begin as he, he sees Paul for the first time? The basic question is, where are you from? Uh, because Felix needs to determine jurisdiction. So he then learns that he's from um, he's from Cilicia, which of course is is part of Syria, which at the time was not yet a full blown province. It was kind of in a transitional period. Um, so there's two possibilities. One is that there wouldn't have been anyone that they could have sent to they couldn't have sent Paul to Cilicia because there wouldn't have been someone really they're equipped to handle Paul's case. The other possibility is, is that frequently, in order to avoid expense and difficult uh, difficulty in administrating a, a, a trial, you, you would have a transfer of jurisdiction or one of the governors would, would just take jurisdiction on the case. Um, and in this case, it doesn't really matter either way. Um, but Felix says, all right, I'm going to take this case. Hmm. So, and he, he has him guarded in Herod's Praetorium. We're going to find out more about a, a Herod coming up. What is, what is Herod's Praetorium? Where's, what's, what's the, the setting? It was a, it was a, um, uh, a palace, um, essentially that Herod, I guess that would be the great, um, probably. Built. Yeah. Yeah. It's Caesarea Maritima. Um, and at, but at this point in time, it was used as a, an administrative building. Hmm. So that's where Paul is being held until his trial will come before Felix. That will come up in the next chapter. So, Pastor Roth, we have about 10 minutes to reflect on on some of the things that are here in this text. Uh, on the one hand, it's pretty much narrative. There's not a ton of theological statements from Paul, from from anyone really, other than perhaps the the matter of they, he's accused about questions of their law that shows up in Claudius's letter. That's a almost a theological statement. Uh, what what is here for for us as Christians? What are some of the applications, the things that we need to learn from this text? Well, Paul was initially given a promise that he was going to end up in a certain destination. Right now, we don't have the Lord appearing to each of us and telling us exactly what the next you know 
road trip is going to be or, or the next trip over the next few years. Um, we really are, we live by faith, not by sight. Um, we're in some sense kind of like a fish cut on a hook that the Lord is drawing us through this world, helping us to avoid certain dangers, but he's really ultimately pulling us to our heavenly home. So I think that when you were baptized, you received this promise from God. I'm going to be with you throughout all your days, with you always, and then I'm going to bring you to your final destination of your heavenly home. So I think that we should recognize that the the, the promise that Jesus gave to Paul and the promise that we receive in our baptism are just as trust. They're equally trustworthy, even though we don't have the you know wonderful appearance of a vision from Jesus. Nonetheless, that promise made to you, I'm God's own child. I gladly say it. I'm baptized into Christ. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That promise is what's going to sustain us through on our journey. And I see in Paul's life um, a sense of wondering, right? He's, he's, he's being moved around, but as we saw in today's text, in an extremely passive manner. He's, he's a prisoner. He's being shuttled here and, here and there, um, and, and he doesn't have agency. And that's true of all of us. We delude ourselves into thinking that we're in control of our lives. And as sinners, we want to be like God, knowing good and evil and calling the shots. But the sooner we come to grips with the fact that we are fundamentally passive in this life, first of all, for our justification, that we have absolutely no way of making our relationship with God better or right, but that has to be completely by grace, by his work, by his imputing of the righteousness of Christ to us, by his forgiveness of all of our sins. That's the fundamental passivity that we have before God. But even when we think we're in control, we're really not. And this same Paul is the one who wrote in Romans chapter 8, that the Lord is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So I think we should, we should correlate what we see in Paul's experiences in the book of Acts with many of the doctrinal or spiritual teachings that Paul gives us in his epistles and realize Paul was probably, well, certainly reflecting on his own experience of being passive in the presence of God and realizing it's not about me. It's about Jesus and about what Jesus is going to do with my life. I'm reminded of, you brought up baptism, and I think that promise that the Lord makes us in baptism is certainly one that we should hold on to as Paul is holding on to the very certain promise he received in verse 11 of Acts chapter 23, we have the very certain promise of Jesus in holy baptism that we belong to him. We are his child and, and he will not leave us or forsake us. I'm, I'm reminded also of the catechism when we think about, you know, sort of you mentioned in our conversation earlier, the hidden will of God and, and how, you know, we don't know what he's up to. I'm reminded of the way Luther speaks when it comes to the third petition of the Lord's prayer in the catechism about what God's will is. We may not know exactly what God's will is about where I'm going to testify to the Lord or even where I'm going to go or some of these minute details of our life. We don't know what the Lord's, what, what exactly will happen, but we do know that big picture will, those promises that we have. And I think that's one of the things when it, when we think about the book of Acts is that sometimes we, we do see these very specific promises that are made to Paul or to Peter. And, and we don't always have those very specific, you know, minute by minute promises from the Lord, but we have the big promises. And, and to hold on to those promises, that's the living by faith, not by sight, that we live in the same way that Paul lived in Acts 23. Yeah. And, you know, people will ask sometimes, well, what is the will of God for my life? And they really will puzzle over it and they'll pray and they'll expect some sort of answer from heaven. But we have, first of all, the the, prom the promise that it's the will of the Father to draw people to Christ and that they be saved eternally. But on a practical day-to-day -day basis, what is the will of God for your life? Well, God's law, the Ten Commandments, are the express will of God. And as Luther puts in the large catechism, when he's summing up um, the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, he says, you know, if you just would focus on the commandments, um, you wouldn't have time for anything else, right? Hmm. So m that's why meditating on the commandments every day is a good thing, not only for self-examination so that we can uh, recognize what we need to take to the Lord and ask for forgiveness of, but also for meditating on, am I... Is what I'm doing today in line with the will of God as given in the Ten Commandments? And Paul puts, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, 
make the best use of the time for the days are evil. And that, that's a good diagnostic for a day-to-day, even minute-by-minute um, way of evaluating. Is, it, am I aligning myself with the will of God with my life? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, as, as you're bringing out the Ten Commandments and, and what the Lord would have us do, His will for us, I, the other part of the, the promise that's given to Paul is not only that he will get to Rome, but that he will testify to Jesus there. And as, as we mentioned along the way in this study, you know, Paul is very passive. We don't hear much of what he says and hardly anything of what he does of his own accord. But given the, the nature of what we see Paul doing elsewhere in the book of Acts and what he writes, certainly this whole time he's testifying to Jesus. He is, he is about that will that the Lord has very clearly given to him to testify to his name. And, and so it is for us in those, in those moments, you know, Paul, Paul knows that the Lord's going to get him to Rome. He doesn't know how. And so as Paul's going through this and, and probably wondering what is going on here to a certain degree, when we have that same experience to hold on to what the Lord has clearly spoken to us to seek to do those things and then to live in his forgiveness when we, when we don't live up to them. I mean, that, that does give us strength and confidence in those moments where we are very passive. We don't know what's going on and, and living by faith is, is a challenge clinging to what God has clearly said is, is the key. We've got about two and a half minutes here to wrap things up. Pastor Roth. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you made the observation once that, um, when Jesus told, um, the apostles that they would be his witnesses, that maybe it wasn't only that they would be testifying to what they had heard and seen at Jerusalem in the three years of Jesus ministry at his crucifixion at, in those 40 days after Easter, um, that's all the fundamental message that they would be conveying and bearing witness to, but that they would also be witnesses of the great works that he would be doing in each of their lives. And what you see here is in the life of Paul, you see almost a cumulative effect of um, where not only has he had Jesus appear to him and convert him and, and baptize him and make him a preacher, and Paul continually points back to those things, that's what Jesus did early on. But he witnesses with his own eyes the marvelous interventions that the Lord works throughout his life. And all he can do is say, God be praised. This is amazing. And, you know, um, and, and he's even able to glory in his weaknesses, in his sufferings. Um, when he's weak, he's strong. Um, Romans 5, we rejoice even in our afflictions because we are justified by faith in Christ. Pastor Carl Roth is pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us today with Acts chapter 23, verses 12 to 35. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 23, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.